0: On this episode of Teched Out by Full Stack Academy, Corey and I talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence. How could a machine built by humans, given little to no instructions from a human, learn to play a game like chess better than any human? How does proving you're not a robot online teach cars how to drive themselves? How are you doing today, Corey? I'm good.
1: Just little scared about all these amazing suggestions YouTube is making to me about what I should be watching.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a little too creepy. Creepy. It's and very it, creepy. What what kind of creepy suggestions do you get? Just uh how to so, make a podcast about technology.
1: It's like very on point. So the yeah, it's it's a little creepy and I I think that the reason why it's so creepy is because a human isn't picking it. It's right. not deciding. A human isn't going out there trying to read who I am and figure out about me. That would take a lot of effort. But for yeah. some reason, the algorithm that
0: YouTube is using is it's pretty on point. So you mean there's not someone at YouTube who's like tasked to me and just watches all the videos that I watch and says like, oh, you know what? That reminds me of this other video that you might like.
1: Right. Is You know, someone is... That term is sort of an ethical debate, right? Like, are these algorithms people? But yes, in some sense of the word, no, it's not a person. It's just a very good guess, somehow, based off of what I've been watching and predictively making me watch more.
0: And it's a machine making that guess.
1: And it's a machine making that guess. Right. And so, this is how far we've come with machine learning. Uh, a a term that we should probably discuss today Mm -hmm. that allows this algorithm to be so good at what it's doing. Its only job in life is to pick my next video, Right. right? And how we got there is a pretty interesting story, right? Yeah. So how did we, you know, computers didn't always make the guesses themselves. Today, we can kind of spoil the end of this episode by telling you that today, a lot of the times these algorithms aren't programmed by human developers like it's a crazy concept because when we just talked about programming languages in previous episodes we talked about all the code that humans are writing all the logical decisions that humans have to make but at some point things become very difficult to code and this concept of making things difficult to code sort of leads to an analogy very similar to how our brain works right? We can sort of see the inputs that go into making a human think the way that they do, and the output being what the human can do. But how the human does it, or how this algorithm does it, sort of becomes this black box.
0: Yeah, right. The processes behind the scenes are sort of hidden from us, right? Right. And so we've talked a little bit about algorithms in the past, and how algorithms are really just these kind of step-by-step processes, right? And traditionally, human programmers have written these algorithms in programming languages as a series of logical steps. Right? We say, first, you know, declare this variable. Next, if the variable is greater than 10, then do this. Otherwise, do this other thing. And it's a very logical step-by-step, do this, then that, then that sequence. Right? Mm. And that works pretty well if we're trying to get a computer to do something that we already know how to do perfectly well. Especially if we're only trying to get the computer to approximate it, right? If we're trying to get a computer to do something almost as well as we can do it. But if if we're moving beyond that, if we're saying we don't even know how to do this thing ourselves or we want this thing to perform in a superhuman fashion to do better than computers can do, we can't necessarily take that approach anymore where we're telling it how to do these things, where we're giving it the explicit instructions anymore.
1: right? Right. So this is, this is a very good point, and it's sort of scary how we got to this point, but maybe we should go back to the roots of machine learning. Uh, it goes back much further than you know, what we think of as modern artificial intelligence, but this idea of computers being intelligent goes back to like—
0: Yeah, Turing actually, I think, thought and wrote a lot about machine intelligence. We still have to this day the term uh, Turing, uh, the Turing test. Right. To talk about artificial intelligence is the idea that a computer program could potentially fool a human into thinking that it is human itself.
1: That sounds like or, the worst form of catfishing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Turing, actually, I don't know that he invented the term catfishing, but he kind of invented the idea of when it's a human doing it.
1: Mm. Mm, gotcha. That's all right. Too far. I don't know. <laughs>
0: Have they ever done that on that TV show? I haven't watched enough. Catfished. Like, oh, it turns out you've been talking to a bot this whole time. <laughs>
1: we should. I think. I think we'll contact them when we. Yeah, we, we go we, live.
0: We gotta. We gotta make sure that we like get the rights to that first. Then we can do some negotiation.
1: What early on gave birth to this idea of machine intelligence, artificial intelligence?
0: Well. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that computers have evolved in a way a lot in the last century, right? We had these incredibly simple machines that were enormous and expensive to run and tough to build and could only do very simple things, really just a handful of decades ago. But very quickly, We've gone from that to having these machines that are general purpose. They're small. They're incredibly powerful. They can do all these things that we can only dream of as humans. And there's this sort of intelligence to that, right? It kind of gets to the idea of what is intelligence? What is learning? I think maybe we can talk a little bit about how different is it when a computer is doing something complicated versus when a human is doing something complicated. Are those processes similar at all? And I think what Turing and other people in his day started to see was, well, maybe computers are just sort of a different version of human brains. Hmm. Maybe they could be trained or become complicated enough to do things that humans can't even do themselves. Right. And
1: early on, these Tasks were limited to what humans could already do. We could make computers play chess, for example, by physically programming logical operations when this is the current board state, make this particular move. And this drawn out way of writing this logic has its limitations because you're only as good as the human developer thinking about it and kind of objectively going through what the board states could possibly be. And that's sort of limited, right? There's gotta be a better way to go about it. And as years went on, things started to change. As you mentioned, uh, processing power got better. We had more computational power to complete tasks. And we started taking a different approach. We started saying, hey, instead of us teaching the machine, telling it the explicit set of rules on how to do something, why don't we just go ahead and let the machine experience it? Almost like a human experiencing, you know, looking at a a chair for the first time, you know, you, you know, you point at a, a four legged chair or something like that. Your mom goes chair or something like that. And then, you know, you, you look at something else and it's a table, but it's got four legs and you go chair because you've seen another object with four things, four legs before. And you're like, oh, that's obviously a chair. Mom said that was a chair, but then you go, ta- you go chair and mom has to go, no, no, that's a table. And you start to make these distinctions how could we go about programming a computer to start thinking almost like we do, right? That's a very strong, powerful, scary concept.
0: Yeah. Traditional algorithms, the way that we code them, aren't really like that. They're more like if we wanted to teach a computer what a chair was, we would have to break that down and say, okay, well – You know, a chair is this thing that has four legs and it's made of wood or metal and it's somewhere between, you know, two and four feet tall. Like, we'd have to really kind of break it down that way. But, like you said, you don't teach children or or anybody about things in the world that way. You have them experience things instead and learn from that experience. Their brains are changing when they have that experience and the feedback from them, right? Right. So,
1: in. of course, it's not completely known to this day exactly how we learn. It's hypothesized, and at a psychological level, we can make uh, pretty good assumptions. We have a lot of evidence on on the behavioral level about the black box of the brain as a whole and what inputs make predictive outputs, but at the neurological level, we don't have a lot of uh, knowledge in this area,
0: right? Yeah, not, not at a high level, at least, in terms of like the whole complicated system. We we do kind of know how uh, synapses, the connections between neurons, can strengthen or maybe even degrade over time as we forget things or decide things aren't important. And we're starting to take a lot of lessons from at least those specific cases in human learning and incorporate them into how we teach machines. In fact, this is an idea that I think goes back decades, the idea of neural networks Mm. kind of modeling the way that humans learn. But as you mentioned before... We haven't always had the computing power that we're you know, lucky to have today. And I think at the time, even though neural networks were a promising idea, the technology just wasn't there. And so people kind of dismissed them for a while. But we're experiencing a renaissance in that area these days, just in the last few years.
1: So let me clarify really quick what neural networks are. And this concept is outside of computing. This is something that's true of the human nervous system. In, 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 in essence, there's, there's, a, there's many ways that we can describe the relationships between the basic unit of the human uh, nervous system, which is the, the neuron, right? And the neuron, basically, a, a general chemical synapse neuron, which basically allows us the connection between um, one upstream and one downstream neuron, maybe a bunch of downstream neurons, and one upstream neuron, et cetera. Uh, this connection between the two, we call a synapse. And so the idea here is that when something occurs in the body, even you moving your arm, the signal that comes from the brain is purely electricity. These neurons have this electrical impulse that's sent down almost like a wire. It's a conductive wire. That's what this, this neuron's axon, it's called, is. And if the electrical signal reaches a certain threshold, it actually transmits this electricity.
0: To the next neuron in the pathway.
1: Correct, it it will go down the axon, and at the end it releases this thing called a neurotransmitter, maybe you've heard of things like dopamine, right? Mm. And so this dopamine gets released, it gets picked up by the next neuron, and this, this process could continue if that next neuron hits a certain threshold of electricity. Now. The way that it's thought that we can start to make these connections as a human is that if two neurons, one way, I should say, one way, is that if two neurons happen to fire coincidentally at the same time, their connection will strengthen. So if one neuron fires and then another neuron fires, maybe because of the one before it, but maybe also because of other surrounding neurons, the strength between those two neurons will actually strengthen. And we can actually replicate this in, in an artificial form with computers, which is pretty cool. We have this idea of like upstream nodes. And these nodes are connected to other nodes via a pathway. We think of this in humans as the, the synapse, the space between two neurons. But in, in, in the machine, we can kind of replicate this by just putting an artificial uh, weighting system Right between these two nodes, we can say, Oh, okay, in the human body, if there's a fifty percent chance that if this neuron fires, the next one does, we can replicate that mathematically by saying, Okay, if this node happens to turn on, there's a fifty percent chance that the next node will actually turn on. And this is actually a pretty cool idea where we can start to replicate what we think of as human brain neuro like plasticity in machinery.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. So we're actually at this point modeling how computers work largely on how we know the human brain works. And again, that's still a fuzzy area, still something that we have a lot to figure out in. But the little bit that we do know is heavily influencing machine learning. You mentioned this idea of neurons that uh, are, are firing at the same time. They can have connections between each other that strengthen over time as they continually fire in, uh, in tandem. Right, I remember a professor of mine. I think he liked to use the phrase "neurons that fire together wire together." Mm. Right, so almost this idea that if you have, say, you're learning about a chair for the first time, you're learning what a chair is. If you have certain neurons in your brain that fire when you see the chair and you see certain shapes, you know, something with four legs and a back and a seat, and then you also have certain neurons in your brain that fire when you hear those sounds, when you hear chair spoken to you, if they keep firing at the same time or close in time to each other, then you might form connections between those. And that's what allows your brain. And that's where it starts to get, you know, a little bit fuzzy. We know that things work essentially that way at the individual neuron level. How we get someone to actually understand what a chair is works something like that, of Mm. course. But, you know, that's where we have to kind of just trust the black box that's working the way it's supposed to well
1: hopefully one day you know this is this is part of the reason why i left the field was the i, I before this i had my uh, bachelor's in, in neuroscience i went on uh, actually to go for my phd in neuroscience but i ended up leaving to do this to go into computer science and part of partly because of machine learning one of yeah. my main interests in this field but the thing is, is it's it's you you think that the progression is very fast. You think that we are moving very quickly in neuroscience and in science in general. But the reality of it is actually very very slow. And the lab work is tedious. And and special props to all my, you know, <laughs> uh, fellow grad students who were there at the time who had a lot more discipline than I did, just sitting there and being able to actually work through these experiments. So it is really slow, it is a grind, and that is something that, of course, needs to be done, but the progress is unfortunately a lot slower. And that's one of the things that's great about, you know, using these machine models, is that these the feedback on these things, the faster that we can process, the faster we can get results, right? So, okay, we have this set up now. We understand that we can have these sort of artificial connections between nodes or neurons, we can start to weight these connections and sort of replicate what we think uh, a mini brain or a mini artificial neural network might be. How does this help us?
0: So, we talked before about how algorithms can be kind of hard-coded in a way, right? And if we want something to approximate what a human does, we can literally just tell it exactly what to do at each step of the way. and. I guess taking a step back here for a second, that's essentially what we were still doing with any kind of artificial intelligent program not that long ago. So it was a big event in the late 1990s when a a computer program called Deep Blue, I think it was Deep Blue 2.0, the second incarnation of this, that IBM had created uh, actually beat uh, Garry Kasparov. In the world championship, well, uh, he was the he was the world champion at the time, I think. Um, and and Deep Blue and IBM challenged him to a uh, a series of chess matches, and Deep Blue actually beat Gary Kasparov. So, defeating the world champion at chess, computer program for the first time ever, we might say was the best chess player in the world. And even this was a complicated program. It required an enormous amount of processing power, but it was using kind of the old model. It was the computer program evaluating uh, all these possible moves and the moves that would be possible after that and what the opponent was likely to do and it was like sequencing through all of these things. We had to teach it very explicitly how to evaluate those moves and how to play chess and how to decide what was a good move or not, right?
1: So again, this was sort of limited by algorithms. This was limited by like what humans could create as a logical way of of what is the best move. We could calculate, you could think about it logically, right? Like if you stared at a chessboard long enough, and even if you're a very basic chess player and you, you really, really, really mapped out every single possible move that could happen from this position forward, you could predict what the best possible move would be. And that's sort of the approach that was taken here. It wasn't Uh, learned. It wasn't like this was a player actually playing the game. It was purely calculated. Impressive, nonetheless, but not really machine learning, right? This was artificial intelligence. This was logical uh, programming
0: at its finest, but, but certainly not machine learning. Right. It wasn't a machine that was learning purely based on experiences and feedback, right? So one thing that I think we should note at this point is the other thing that's allowed machine learning to really just kind of take off in the last few years, yes, definitely hardware and processing power has allowed us to build these complicated neural networks, but also just the fact that we've quantified so many things voluntarily. We've just be- been creating you know, petabytes worth of data constantly. And the world just has so much data, especially these giant companies like Google and Facebook whose main purpose is to gather data about people. They just have so much to work from, and that's data that can be used as experience and input to these machine learning algorithms that can then turn them into something. So. Hey
1: that's that's a great point so the key here is data right that's that's what changed our ability to switch to this other sort of learning process sort of like how a human might need need, needed a few repetitions of what that chair was oh it's four legs it's got a back it's got a you know until it hammered out exactly what a chair was i'm pretty good at it no jeff i don't want to brag but (laughs) but the thing is is that this distinction was was really big we needed a lot of data and maybe we can talk about a couple ways that machines today could learn right how could we go about learning what does that even mean theoretically
0: sure so with all of this data we've got i guess a certain subset of problems that we're kind of using machine learning to solve right now things that we either want to do better than humans have ever been able to do or Uh, things that humans just haven't been able to crack. Mm. So let's maybe focus on that first category there, things that we want machines to be able to do better than humans. So one thing that's really hot right now is uh, the idea of self-driving cars. Hmm. We have self-driving cars, they're being tested, there are actually lots of them on the roads, they're getting lots of press. So there was this thing in the news just a few months ago about a self-driving car that was being tested by Uber. And there was a a human sitting at the wheel, but I I think they weren't really paying attention. You can imagine it would be pretty easy if you're just sitting in this car for miles after mile on the highway or just kind of, you know, going through a, a city or something like that. It'd be pretty easy to get distracted and not be paying attention at all times. The sad thing about this particular incident where a pedestrian was killed is that a human driver who was actually actively paying attention probably wouldn't have made the mistake. Mm. And it seems especially tragic when computers make mistakes that seem so obvious to us humans. You know, machines tend to not necessarily be good and bad at the same exact tasks as humans. But the interesting thing about that is that I think at the on the same exact day as that pedestrian was killed, the headline could just as easily have read thousands of people killed by human-driven vehicles, right. right? So machines are actually quite a bit better at a lot of these specific tasks. Driving a car is just incredibly complicated, and we're trying to get better at it. Mm. One of the ways that we're getting better at it is by giving it more and more data, hmm. right? So that it can recognize the kinds of things that humans would be liable uh, to recognize. And
1: what's the crazy part about that is that all of you listening to this podcast are the ones giving it all of that data, maybe without even realizing it, right? If you've noticed recently your captchas, that you are proving that you're a human, right, on every site that comes to mind, you are asked, like, you know, which of these look like uh, traffic lights? Where? Which of these have uh, street signs? Which of these are whatever? And by doing that, you are providing the data that these machines are going to be trained with. I I want to allude to one type of machine learning. So there's a lot of different kinds of machine learning out there. Um, There's two, there's a few different major categories, two of which I want to talk about. One is uh, something known as supervised machine learning. And another one is called unsupervised machine learning. Machine, supervised machine learning is like that example that I said before with the chair, right? Which is I point, I say chair, Uh, mom goes, that is a chair. I now know it's a chair and I'm reinforced for that behavior. I point to something else. I say, is this a chair? They go, no, it's not a chair. I go, okay, that's not a chair. And it correct that behavior and it improves time and time again. This idea of supervised learning is when the human knows the correct solution. It's very helpful when we're training. Uh, machines to do tasks that we already know the solutions for. Just like we're doing with that CAPTCHA by providing a we know what these street signs are. CGP Gray is this YouTuber, maybe many of you have heard of him. He has an unbelievable set of video, set, uh, video series that you should absolutely watch, a great podcast as well. And I want to point out one video called How Machines Learn. And he describes one form of machine learning, which is this idea that when one way that we could possibly train computers, one way that we could possibly train these machines that we don't exactly know how to complete a particular task is to put together sort of a random, almost like a random guess at a particular task. The, the one that he uses is like maybe a computer whose job it is to sort between pictures of B's and pictures of threes, right? And so having to sort between this task is pretty straightforward to a human. You look at a picture and you're like, oh, that's a B or that's the number three, and it's pretty straightforward. But what we could do is essentially make an algorithm that at just some chance guesses the correct answer. We show it a picture and it can guess, you know, B or 3. And most of the time it's wrong. But if we had enough randomly created algorithms, enough, you know, variables that we can play with, adjust, turn the knobs, turn the dials on and off a little bit more and less and a couple constraints that are given by humans, we might get a decent bot that maybe guesses at a 20, 30% rate, you know, oh, I got this right. The ones that are correct are rewarded by being sort of kept alive and adjusted again. And we make more copies of those things and we continue to do this time and time again until we finally have an algorithm that isn't guessing at 20 to 30% between B's and 3's, but eventually, you know, 70, 80, 90%. And these become the algorithms that, that are made to do this job. And the way that they're built, the amount of training data that is required is absolutely insane. And that's what we're seeing in these Uber situations is like, we're providing obviously tons, tons, billions, petabytes of data, right? Like where just by training it, we're getting better, but of course, we're going to miss things, right? Just like as CGP Grey alludes to, you know, sometimes you show the the bot a video and all of a sudden, a video of a bee is guessed as a three, even though it could have been perfect at guessing images, a video throws it off completely, right? So maybe there's something about that scenario that that was unfamiliar to the algorithm and all of a sudden just like our human guessing that that table was a chair is thrown off its game. In this case, the consequences were drastic.
0: Yeah, absolutely, right. Um, You mentioned the the CAPTCHA idea and I think it is interesting that those things are being used to train for image recognition and particularly it seems like for self-driving cars these days. The first ones that I remember were those like really kind of hard to read words and letters that were drawn where you needed to type in what the picture of the words and letters was. And that was actually the same idea, right? It was training uh, computer programs to be able to recognize written or printed text, not just text that had been typed into a form somewhere, but you know maybe pictures of a scanned-in book or uh, human writing, things like that. So we've been training machines all along just by giving it all of this data often for free and often without even realizing google, that that's what we're doing
1: google got you coming and going on that right yeah. they they were charging the sites for human authentication security they were charging the companies for translation of their documents just absolutely crazy move by uh good job google honestly great uh you know i know you know a lot about me and i, I don't want to upset you so good job <laughs> All right, so yes, so so this idea of reward and reinforcement is something that humans we know are trained on as well. This good job, this pat on the back, it it, it sort of feeds the reward center, what we think of as the ventral tegmental area of the brain, as this dopamine rich reward center. And, and that's sort of what we're doing with these machines here is what we're, we're rewarding them by giving them that artificial, you are correct and that artificial you are correct is triggering this, okay, well, let me adjust the dials a little bit here and a little bit there and and sort of keeping the best, uh, the best, in this case, algorithm and and that can move on and live on. This is just one way that we can do
0: things, right? Sure, yeah, well, you were just talking about supervised learning where we're constantly interacting with this and giving it feedback for little things that it does. Yes, you're correct there. No, that's the wrong answer, right? Uh, It's kind of like the way that you would very carefully work with a child as you're teaching something a supervised learning scheme but we also have the idea of unsupervised learning right and the analogy that i think of here is i don't know maybe you're a little older maybe you're leaving the house for the first time going to college and there's not as much structure you're not given feedback on every little thing that you do you're maybe not even told what the goal is supposed to be It's just you get a chance to go out there and try things and explore and see what you like. And maybe you get that same reward from something, right? You uh, go out and try a whole bunch of things and you maybe volunteer at a certain place and you find it rewarding. You get that sense of reward and that just reinforces the kinds of behaviors that led to you doing Hmm. that, right? We have something similar-ish. In machine learning as well, we have unsupervised learning where we give machines—it's just wild out there. It's, it's
1: just totally just, unsupervised. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy algorithms doing crazy things. The wild west of machine learning. Yes. So, how could this work? Are there any big examples out there of uh, where we might have seen this before? Any? So, h- how could training on this work if we're not? If we don't know the answer. How could machines know the answer?
0: Right. So, I think that. Maybe this is a good time to uh, go back to our I- idea of games. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about chess before and how Deep Blue was not necessarily a machine learning algorithm but a very sophisticated program that was able to become the best chess player in the world at the time. In the last few years, we've gone on to more complicated games.
1: Chess uh, isn't hard enough Chess anymore.
0: is pretty complicated. Yeah, there right? are a lot of <laughs> different possible moves, right? A lot of different possible arrangements of the pieces on the board. It's like... To humans, it seems like it's just infinitely complex. We'll never perfect the game. And I think pretty soon after that, people were talking about, okay, well, what are computers going to conquer next? And a lot of people pointed to Go because Mm. it's incredibly complicated. And people would point at it and say, it's gonna take a long time for computers to conquer Go because they can't do what Deep Blue did which is to analyze all of the possible moves that it had available and figure out roughly how that would turn out in the end for the computer.
1: This reminds me when we talked about the in the our algorithms episode, the 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 traveling salesman problem. Yeah. There's just too many possible combinations to complete. Right with chess, the board size is is limited to a small enough size where we could maybe run and process all of the possible outcomes. Remember, every single move that we could predictively make right now, maybe there's five or ten from that particular position. There's five or ten more, and five or ten more, and five or ten more. And so running that analysis at a certain level becomes extremely computationally heavy. And for the Go game, we see that this is almost impossible. That the the sheer calculation of this would take way too much power, way too much time, even to make a, a even a competition against the human being. Definitely. We, so we thought.
0: Right. So it's just not even in the realm of possibility for a computer program to consider all these moves and approach things that way. So when a team of, of researchers, really, at the DeepMind division of Google, well, it was a, a independent company that was acquired by Google a handful of years ago, so DeepMind decided they wanted to try and conquer the game of Go using modern machine learning techniques, using a neural network. And the way that they, uh, th- this was a program that eventually became known as AlphaGo. So mm. if you've heard of AlphaGo, this is, this is what was happening in the background there. The way that they approached that initially was to say, let's use one of these neural networks, a sort of simulated brain that would learn from experience. And we'll first train it on a lot of data from games played by Go masters, people who are just expert level players at the Go game. I think it was something around 30 million moves of Go, (laughs) so a pretty big data set. And they just basically showed these games to the computer and showed these are the kinds of moves that you want to make and they taught it how to play Go that way, kind of the way that you would teach a really, really smart person how to play Go from example games. And then they let it also learn by playing games against itself and going out and playing games against real people. Eventually, it started playing people who were kind of amateur Go players up to intermediate Go players. Eventually, it was playing some of the top Go players in the world, and I think it was in late 2015 or early 2016 it finally actually beat one of the top-ranked Go players in the world. Hmm. And after enough tweaking, it eventually, like Deep Blue, beat the world champion and became the best Go player in the world. This was a, a computer program which had mastered the game of Go and I think actually ended up retiring as <laughs> you know the world's number one-ranked Go player. So how is this unsupervised? So this, I don't know that this would necessarily be classified as unsupervised just yet. It was somewhat supervised. It at least got the feedback from... um, We won or we lost. Right. And and initially, when it was trained on this data from human-played games, it was sort of told, these are the kinds of moves that you should be making. But afterward, after they retired the original AlphaGo program just last year... They released uh, some research about something that they did called AlphaGo Zero, Mm. which was a little bit different. It used a lot of what they learned from the original AlphaGo project, but they decided rather than starting it with all of this human training data, they would just teach it what it meant to win a game of Go. That's the only thing that they gave it. They gave it the same neural network, and they said, this is what it looks like when you've won the game of Go, wow. and that's the reward that you're going for. So this is really kind of more the unsupervised thing. And then it just let it, from scratch, just start playing games against itself. So it starts out sort of random, right? Making stupid moves, right, that don't end up leading to, to good outcomes. But it let it play millions of games against itself. And over the course of... Uh, it was really just a few days, I think, before it was starting to play Go really well. Mm. And within a few months, it had actually completely surpassed even previous versions of AlphaGo to the point where I think it beat the original version of AlphaGo in like 100 games to zero or something. <laughs> it, like, it was crushing it. And people have been looking at these, uh, the moves that AlphaGo Zero is making now and realizing that we had no idea how to play Go as humans before this. And it learned completely new ways and just showed us that everything we knew was wrong.
1: Isn't this mind-blowing, right? That, again, we don't even know how it got there. We gave it some starting position and we can see what it can do, the moves that it can make, but we don't know what, how it's changing those weights exactly. What is happening in each stage? These are happening so frequently, so many millions of games have passed to get it to this point that, even us the human overseer doesn't really know everything that's happening
0: yeah it's very much that kind of black box right but this still is arguably supervised
1: even though the training is that is is you know not given as official data the, the the outcome is still known. Did you win or lose? Sure. Yeah. Right.
0: We, we still have to have, even in unsupervised paradigms, the machines have to have something that reinforces certain types of behavior, something that gives an artificial kind of reward right. so that it you know can be rewarded and, and keep doing those sorts of things for the ultimate goal. But we weren't leading it by the hand, step by step, and kind of showing it how to get from point A to B and eventually to Z. We just said, here's Z, however you get there go for it. And we have no idea how it did it. I also
1: want to point out that in data science, unsupervised networks are often very key and very focused upon because a lot of times with unsupervised networks, the goals are also unknown. Like What we want as an end result might actually be unknown. And We could start to find comparisons between things that even the humans didn't think about could be compared or these two data points are correlated and nobody even thought to compare those two things, right? It's like that – how pirate ships and global warming are very closely (laughs) – do you know this? Uh, that that, uh, that there's like a very strong correlation, like a stupid strong correlation. Of course, correlation is not causation, right? But uh, between the the number of pirate ships and like the global and global warming, like there's like <laughs> 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 like a like a very strong inverse relationship. Like the fewer the number of pirate ships, the higher. The right. rate of global warming. It's a very, it's like weird. It's
0: is, isn't that like one of the core tenets of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster or something? Like it's they, a real church, They want to like, bring back. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a real, it's a real a legit religion. Yeah. <laughs> they want to so. bring back pirates because obviously that's going to combat global warming. They will.
1: So, yeah, it's a very important tenet. But this, okay, so one thing that we should talk about is like, let's just try to put a number on how powerful. Like, what did AlphaGo Zero need to be able to? do this competition was it just like a a standard sit-at-home PC
0: yeah uh, kinda (laughs) not really at all though (laughs) especially while it was being trained this was just running constantly again for months it was just playing games against itself and trying to learn and tweak itself as quickly as possible I mean this had uh, estimates are that it was using well over a thousand CPUs so an enormous amount of hardware plus a bunch of specialized processing units uh, known as, well, we used GPUs, graphical processing units, and also TPUs, which is a a thing that Google has just developed within the last few years as these specialized uh, processors that are just for machine learning, basically. So it was using thousands of processors, you know, hundreds of times more than you have in your typical PC, and they were probably very highly specialized processors as well.
1: And that's that's what's really interesting here is that, especially with the, the you know, we're talking about Bitcoin again here, but like with the crypto mining and the current state, these TPUs that are coming out, you know, or these um, ASICs, these application-specific integrated circuits, are... Being built now costs them to the process at hand. What's good about our computers is they're sort of generalists, Mm. right? They're they're good at a lot of tasks. CPUs are good at a wide breadth of tasks. GPUs are very good at graphical processing tasks. But it turns out that when you get rid of the need for general computational tasks, the ability to do everything, you can specialize. You can increase your yield by tuning this circuitry to perform or complete a certain task and so now we are building special circuitry for our machine learning friends
0: yeah so that that brings up a, a couple interesting things too i think we're talking about training being a really computationally intensive process when they eventually ran the program they didn't actually use that much processing power once the machine had learned how to play go just running that process was a pretty normal process, I think. I think they were actually able to run it on pretty run-of-the-mill PCs after the training had been complete.
1: And this is why these algorithms, like the one that showed me those crazy YouTube videos that are so good at predicting the next video just because... Well, if I keep watching, that's the right algorithm, right? That's the that's the that's their reinforcement. The, per, the human that stays on the longest is is the reinforcement to you are doing a good job as an algorithm. And this is why companies are so protective of their algorithms, right? Because the 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 specialization of this task is the training is what's the expensive part, right? Like running this algorithm, running this computational task is not particularly difficult most machines could do it these generalists can handle running this program running this algorithm but the training of it is so enormous we're talking about trillions of pieces of data quadrillions right Pe- uh, pentillions i don't even know after that something yeah, a lot, Petabyte, a lot some of data, data. tons of data and so it takes a lot to get there and so these companies are very 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 personal but how did they get there nobody knows here's the result we're not going to show you the result we're going to process everything secretly on our side and just give you back an answer
0: yeah it's kind of similar actually to how other computer programs that are not produced by machine learning methods are produced right we have developers huge teams of developers who are all specializing in their craft and they're working hard on building these algorithms like the product of their work is these algorithms And we're still building algorithms with machine learning. It's just that we're using a different process to get there. Like the end result of all this training that a machine learning algorithm is doing is an algorithm, Hmm. right? It's basically just a function that you can run. But figuring out exactly how that function should work is an incredibly intensive process and one that we're seeing more and more these days humans are not particularly well-suited to do. Hmm. Machines are actually better at coming up with the algorithms for these things than humans could ever be probably.
1: Just because they can iterate on it so many millions of times faster than we can, right? That's the big distinction here, is that we physically, you know, like it says, we say in humans it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert, right? LeBron James just put up like 51 points in that first game of, (laughs) you know, the NBA Finals. It's like He's pretty good. He's 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 probably
0: an expert, I guess.
1: Right, exactly. And so 10,000 hours, like, that is human expertise. 10,000 hours of work for a computer that's like, you know, first of all, that's only a couple of years, right? That's like, or not even, I don't even know. It's like, I, I don't know, I'm not going to do the math here, but it's not that long in time. And also they're able to iterate and perform the iterations that a human could do in 10,000 hours in probably just a few minutes.
0: Yeah, yeah. right. They could do a lifetime's worth of intensive studying of Go and playing <laughs> Go games in a couple hours probably, right? And that's the advantage, time. We can essentially think of a, a human being very limited by the time that they have, even if they're able to ultimately get the same results in a certain amount of time as a computer. The computer's time is just compressed by Mm. orders of magnitude. It can just do so much more. You know, it's doing millions of things every second, and we just are never going to compete with that.
1: So what's your take on this? What do you... What do you think about this world of machine learning? Is it scary? Do you trust self-driving cars? what do
0: you are you buying one now? Or are uh, you what's going on with you? Well, test? I'm definitely not buying a self-driving car just yet, right. I think we still have a way to go. I think the big thing that I'm wondering about is this jump from specialized intelligence to general intelligence. Mm. And I think a lot of people seem to think that, we are a long ways off there. And we probably have a lot more to figure out because we have things that are good at chess, that are good at Jeopardy, that are good at Go, that are good at, you know, recognizing words and images and stuff like that. But they're only good at that thing. If we want something to do something else, they have to produce a different algorithm to do that specialized thing. But what makes me think that we're getting a lot closer, actually, is getting back to AlphaGo Zero, which originally was just good at playing Go... They used the same algorithm, this AlphaGo Zero one, which didn't have the human training data, and they said, okay, you know how to play Go. Here's what it looks like when you win a game of chess. Same exact algorithm, just have it play chess games against itself. These are the rules of chess. Go for it. And very quickly, within the span of just days, it was better than the best previously known computer program at chess playing, which, again, was better than the best human in the world, right? So we are starting to see some generalization and of that didn't, machine intelligence.
1: That didn't take away from how good it was at Go, no, right?
0: No, it was just the best Go player in the world and the best chess player in the world right. at the same time, the same program. So I think one
1: of the things that makes me feel a little bit more uncertain about generality, generalizing um, rather, is you know, we, we, when we make these artificial neural networks, when we start to, which is, again, it's just one form of machine learning, right? When we start to put together this this web of these nodes that are connected by these weighting systems, and this is, this reminds me of, like, layers of the brain, right? And mm-hmm. there's so many different layerings and connections of neurons that could span literally, there's billions of neurons in the brain, right? Um, and so because there's so many and there's so many connections, To replicate the breadth of those connections as well as the depth of any particular circuitry would take tons, tons of computational resources beyond the few layers needed to perform one specialized task. But could we start to replicate things like emotional sensitivity in, 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 In computers, I don't know, maybe. And I think that's the crazy part here is we're getting pretty darn close. Yeah, exactly. How does this image make you feel might be the next (laughs) Captcha, right? Yeah, maybe
0: that's That's the next (laughs) thing DeepMind is going to work on. Um, I think a lot of people... So so one thing that is actually kind of interesting is at this point, I believe it's still the case that the best uh, chess player individually is a computer. But if you allow teams a human and computer team working together will actually beat the best chess-playing programs, Hmm. which tells us that there are still certain things, even within those specialized areas, that human beings are good at. We're good at looking at things creatively, right? We're good at sometimes seeing things that we can't quite explain. But I still think the human brain isn't magic. It's an incredibly sophisticated computer that's the process of billions of years of evolution But it's a computer, and there's nothing magical about a computer made of meat. Mm. Eventually, we're going to get there, and computers will probably be better than human beings at any kind of intellectual task that we give it. Right. Right. And we just need to make sure that we're prepared for that. And we're comfortable with that.
1: Yeah. I was thinking, you know, I was having this debate with someone about uh, doctors. Like, right, there's a lot of robots that are doing surgery now, and is this a a good thing? And, I, and I, diagnosis I, too. I, that's the thing, right? Is like, I actually feel that we're a leading part of, toward a point where, like, you know, remember, a, a a computer can analyze millions of patients, compare what you have, and look it up with more certainty than a doctor that with a couple years of experience and and that's where it starts to become debatable that these for basic diagnoses diagnosing you're sick or what kind of rash you have or something like that is like do we need this level of specialist will computers be able to replace these tasks i don't know but i i certainly think it's possible and i think that you know this is not my way of trying to sell you all on coming into this field but i think that whatever you're doing starting to understand programming starting to understand how our algorithm buddies are coming around and they're here to probably stay can't really hurt you in your field
0: yeah this is a paradigm shift i think in the way that the world works and like you said it's it's not going anywhere we're only moving in one direction here
1: right and once we get catfished by a computer that'll be (laughs) that'll be the day i think uh i will i don't know what i'll do i'll feel I think I'll feel a little sad. i feel a little sad. Yeah. So alright. The lights just went that's out. The lights <laughs> went out, so I guess we're done. Alright. We'll see you all next week. Alright, talk to you soon. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to Tech Out. If you are enjoying the podcast, please like, rate, and share. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore O-U-T.